<clears throat> My name is Burns Bray, and I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, to hear someone from New York who's, who's, who's been kind of bastardized to South Carolina try to say Louisville, it's just almost, it almost makes you want to throw up. But you did a good job. You did a good job. That's, that's really better than most Louisvillians do, i got to tell you. Uh, let me, uh, I assume the ones who are here today really have some true inquisitive nature, some questions to want to know about what we keep calling this a disease about. We always keep calling it a disease. And as you well know, in uh, the doctor's opinion, he talks about a physical allergy and a mental obsession. And I'm, I've always marveled at the intuition and... Uh, and the intelligence of Silkworth and Wilson because they were able to nail at that time based on observation alone what today we have a whole bunch of formulas and a whole bunch of information to tell us. We, we're not saying a, a thing different today than we were saying in 1935 and 1938 when the big book was written. We're just able to nail it better as far as equations and why are we bodily and mentally different from our fellows. And I think it's real important for all alcoholics to understand that we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows. If you don't believe it, ask me. I'm, I'm an instructor at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. I also run the Impaired Physicians Program for the state of Kentucky, and I do the addiction work for a men's and women's homeless shelter where we sleep 250 men and women a night and have 150 in a year-long program of recovery. We were just selected as one of the top five treatment programs in the United States. This is for indigent homeless shelter. And I do all of that, plus go to three to five AA meetings a week, and I've been doing it for, four, for 21 years. Uh, and I got to tell you, long before I studied this disease, I knew we were bodily and mentally different from our fellows. And when I send our medical students to attend AA meetings, open AA meetings, they come back and say, in essence, you are bodily and mentally different from your fellows. <laughs> Uh, and they are just tickled to death because we're all in the same room together because they're scared we might get out in public as a group, and God knows what we might do in, in public as a group. I've listened to, to uh, circuit speakers talk from, from the podium and say that we're not bodily and mentally different. We're no different. That, that's just not true. Uh, and what I say sometimes for humor is, Normal people bleed when we cut them. They cry when they lose somebody. And I practiced medicine for 25 years before I started running the Impaired Physician Program, family medicine, so I listened to tons and tons of people come through my office, and they, respond, they reacted to the same things we react to. They don't react the same way. When, we're at, when they're at a stoplight and it turns green and somebody honks their horn, they just pull on off. We get out and slap hell out of whoever it was in the car behind us. Or if we don't, we give them the finger. Or we spend the next four hours wanting to know why we were such a wimp we didn't get out and whip their butts. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but if you're a drunk of my type, that's exactly... You'll ruminate on it for a week of why you didn't let the SOB know that yours is as big as his is. Now, that's for men. I don't know what you women do, but I can tell you... <laughs> The few that I've been around, and I don't work with women for a lot of reasons. That's in my best interest and in their best interest. But y'all don't act a hell of a lot better than we do. You're just a little smoother about it about half the time. That's like, 
except for people like Sheila, and she tells it like it is, and, <laughs> and uh, the way it was. But she was also a young female drunk, and that, they're, they're entirely different from old female drunks. Same thing is true as young male drunks and old male drunks. Always end up in the same spot, but they're different. Different in their presentation, and different in how they... Different in... The only similarity is that they can't drink like normal people. But there's a whole different presentation. We'll get into all of that. So I've told you my credentials. Um, I've dealt with thousands of street drunks. I've dealt with hundreds of physician drunks. And going to meetings, I've dealt with hundreds and thousands of regular drunks, if you want to, at, at both poles. So if, it had, if I haven't seen it, it probably hadn't happened. I mean, that's just it. If I haven't done it, then it's just because I haven't thought of it, you know. And I usually can think of most of it. I think it's really important for us to realize that there are some people who won't be here this afternoon because they don't think it really matters that we've got a disease. I can only tell you that Bill Wilson reported that that was probably the single greatest piece of information that he had brought to him that enabled him to start this journey. He was a devout member of the Oxford movement. He had had a, a relatively decent assimilation of a relationship with God. Not like where the spiritual awakening that he had, but he kept thinking in terms of being bad rather than being sick. And when Silkworth brought him that piece of information, it absolutely changed his life. And this is recorded in the history of Bill Wilson and the things that he has stated. So it really is important for us to know that we have a disease. Or it, was, it is for the people I've worked with so that we can table this thing about being bad and start dealing with things about being sick who did bad things. And under no circumstances is the concept of a disease to absolve us of the responsibility of our recovery. And people who want to avoid the consequences of their behavior based on being an alcoholic are pretty well doomed not to get sober. Pay unto God what is God, pay unto Caesar's what Caesar's. When I get a DWI by God, they should find me. And if I get two, they ought to put me in jail or whatever the hell it is. When I tell the policeman who stops me that I'm an alcoholic, you know, I've, I, even in recovery, I'd say, they'd stop me and I'd say, I'm a doctor, I'm rushing to an AA meeting, and I've got to help some drunk. Then they just wrote the ticket quicker. And that's exactly what they should have done. They said, Doc, we're really happy. Here you are, you know. And I thought, well, screw them. You know, they don't understand. But many, many times, and the Americans with Disabilities Act has been really pushed to enable us to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of our recovery. I'm absolutely in agreement with, 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 with Richard when he said today, we are generally not responsible for our disease, but we are absolutely responsible for our, for our recovery, and to try to use the disease as an excuse is to distort it and to prostitute it. But I think it really is critical to know we have a disease, how we are different, and how we will have to deal with it. Now, I'm going to be talking for somewhere between the next hour and a half to two hours. If I talk articulately and your butt doesn't go to sleep, I think the material itself will keep you right on target. If you blink, you're going to miss it because th this presentation I'm going to do today, when I do it to doctors, it takes me two. It takes me a day and a half to two days. They're just not as smart as you people, and I'm not really. I'm really. No, let me tell you, they're not as desperate as you people. 
You know, to them it's an intellectual endeavor. To me, it's like you know, it's like it's like the the pig and the chicken when they're sitting there talking about breakfast. You ever heard that? And the chicken's all happy as can be, and the pigs just just shook up. And and the chicken says, "Why are you shook up? It's a great meal." And the pig says, "Because for you it's a contribution. For me, it's total commitment." And <laughs> and for the alcoholic, won't know about his disease. This is a deal of total commitment to the doctors. It's kind of an intellectual deal. Now, I'm not going to shortchange you. You're going to get the same material they'll get. But I'm going to have to condense it. And if you blink, and for some alcoholics in the first five years of recovery, your concentration is somewhere between zero and minus five. So you may have to get up and do a pirouette every now and then. I'll know you're not having a seizure. You're trying to wake up. And that'll be okay. And the rest of you forgive them because that's what they're going to do. Let's look at what we got. Alcoholism was defined by the American Medical Association as a disease in 1955. We defined drug addiction as a disease in 1987. I continue to be intrigued by those people who continue, continue to consider themselves professionals in the, in the field of mental illness who do not want to call this a disease, who still want to call this a secondary problem. If you were improperly potty trained or lusted after your mother, that's what made you a drunk. Now, please don't hear me by saying that you shouldn't revisit your family of origin stuff. But if you're going to live there, you're not going to get sober. But if you don't go back there, you're probably not going to ever know where the bullets came from. Look at the fifth chapter and the fourth step. It says we go back through our lives. Nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. But that group of mental health people continue to call this a secondary illness. It is a primary illness well-defined. I won't get into defining a disease. I think that's basically a bunch of semantics. And when I'm on a podium with a bunch of us so-called experts in the field of addiction medicine, I'm, I'm board certified in family medicine. I'm board certified in addiction medicine. And when we get there and get to talking about what is the definition of a disease, I just sit back and prop my feet up and said, when y'all get finished, let's talk about what's serious. Because I'm not going to get into that. We define it as a disease, and we're the pros. We're the doctors. We're the specialists in disease. Stanley Gettler, who's one of the leading educators in this field, called this disease sedativism. And what he meant was, it's not that a drug is a drug is a drug. That's not, and a lot of people thought he meant that. What he meant was, is the alcoholic will not be able to process mood-altering medication like a normal person. That's an entirely different deal. It's an entirely different deal. And it's real critical for us to remember that we will not process mood-altering medicine like a normal person. My story, and I'll get into more of it tonight when I talk, but the short version of it is that in 1958, and my high school and college years were no different from anybody else, frankly, as far as drinking and drugging. I didn't drug and I didn't drink that much. But in 1958, when I started medical school, I started taking amphetamine, speed to study was hooked on it almost immediately. Twelve years later, after four psychiatric hospitalizations, getting kicked out of medical school, I mean, the whole horror story. I didn't drink during those 12 years, just the amphetamine. I quit taking amphetamine. I, I may get into that tonight, I may not, but I quit taking amphetamine. Then I started drinking. And the first four years of my drinking wasn't alcoholic. I didn't drink that much. I didn't drink that often. Didn't think much about it. Never even considered whether I'd get drunk or whether I'd stay sober. And it didn't impact my life. I had a huge family practice. It was, no, it was not difficult. The next three years of my drinking was alcoholic. 
I didn't drink as much. I didn't drink as often. But every minute of every day, I knew when my first drink was going to be. It was going to be at 4 o'clock. My total obsession was alcohol and when I would get it. And the last year of my drinking was addictive. Addictive. And I drank a quarter of whiskey a day or a night. Told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. And I'll sit and tell you tonight about where I had the shotgun in my mouth and that moment of truth. But that was 12 years of amphetamine with no alcohol. Eight years of alcohol with no other drugs, same sewer. There were some differences, and I'll talk about those tonight. 17 years sober, I had a heart attack, a big one, almost died. Rolled me into the emergency room. I knew the guy hit me at home. I grabbed Casey. I knew what was going on. I was in trouble, big trouble, and I knew it. And I, I didn't even have time to call the EMS. I said, get me to Jewish Hospital. That's the, that's the heart center in Louisville. She got me there in about 10 minutes. I ran in, grabbed the emergency room guy. I knew him. I said, I'm having a heart attack. And he said, jump on the bed, Burns. Did the EKG and said, yeah, you're having an anterior septal heart attack. That's one of the, the bad ones. They're not any good ones, but that's one of the more severe ones. And uh, he said, you're really in trouble. And so he grabbed the heart doctor outside. It's interesting how provincial we get as doctors. Now, I've always, I did this when I was a student. But he said, who's your heart doctor? And I remember him sitting there dying. I thought, well, you crazy son of a bitch. Whoever's out in the hall is my heart doctor, for God's <laughs> sake, you know. I mean, I'm going to call your family doctor. Right. Father Martin says, don't call me a priest. Call me a doctor, you know. So yeah, they grabbed a guy who was a good friend of mine. He happened to be there. He came in, gave me some magic medicine to dissolve the clot. That's the good news. The bad news is it threw me into two immediate bouts of ventricular fibrillation. That's what kills people when they have heart attacks. And I passed out, and he shocked me with the electric shockers. I came to, and I said, Dan, what happened? You had atrial fibrilla- uh, ventricular fibrillation. And uh, I said, how am I doing? He said, you're pretty stable. But this time, they had me full of a bunch of morphine. So I'm having an existential experience, quite frankly. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm floating. And uh, then I started to pass out, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you're fibrillating again. I can't let you pass out. So he put those suckers on my chest, and this time I'm awake. And everything you see on ER is exactly the way it is. Uh, only I'm so full of morphine, I'm popping up off that table, and I'm thinking, this is really neat, you know, <laughs> bam, like that. But you talk about post-traumatic stress disorders. That was going to come back and has since that time, because today I can think about what went on in that emergency room, and there's, for you males, you know what I'm talking about, there's a muscle called a cremasteric muscle, and it's what pulls our testicles back up into our body when we get scared. And animals, when they get in a fight, they'll do that so they, they don't hurt each other in their testicular area. And if you have a cremasteric reflex, that means when something scares you, and every now and then I'll go around and think about that heart attack, my testicles will go like that. Now, then it didn't bother me, you know. Then it didn't, but I can think of it now, and the men are all laughing, the women are going, I don't know what he's talking about, you know? but just trust me, that's the way it happens, that's the way it is. Y'all don't have toys like we do, that's just the way it is. And, and so we have neat things that happen to us, y'all just walk around having babies and periods, I don't know what it's all about. But <laughs> we have these neat things happen to us. But after it was over, I was real fragile, both physically and emotionally. And the doctor said... Uh, because I'd almost died. I mean, I was in trouble. I mean, physically in trouble as well as emotionally. He said, we can't cast you for four days to find out exactly what's going on. So you're going to have to wait four days. I'm going to put you on IV Ativan. Now, Ativan is Turbo Valium. 
And when he said he was going to do that, I said, I need to call Charlie Frankie. He's an addiction specialist like me. And he said, why are you calling Charlie? I said, because that medicine's going to screw me up. And he said, then I won't give it to you. And I said, would you give it to any other heart patient where I am? He said, yeah. oh, yeah. And I said, then you give it to me. Because you saved my life. Charlie's going to come in here and save my soul and get me where I need to be. And we tell people about taking medicine. And I remember when I came back, I came back from treatment. They drilled me with this. And it's a good drill. It's a good drill. And I came back and I had a... Well, a couple of things happened. One is I had a kidney stone within the first three months. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I, I knew exactly what I had. And I said, Casey, you have to take me to the emergency room. So we started over there and the stone quit moving. I said, now, when I get there, I can't take any Demerol or morphine. I'm an alcoholic. And it wasn't moving. So they rolled me in the emergency room and it started moving. And I said, give me Demerol. Give me morphine. Give me Dilaudid. And the nurse came in. She said, you know, I've had kidney stones in babies and they're about 50. They're about equal. And I, my first response was, why did you ever have the second baby? My God in heaven. I mean, this kidney stone's about all the fun I can tolerate. But I took that medicine and should have. The other thing is I had a vasectomy. So they rolled me in. They said, we can put you to sleep or we can do it under local. And I said, uh, I can't take medication, so do it under local. And about that first time that needle went into my testicular sac, I remember thinking to myself, I've made a huge error in judgment, you know? <laughs> And there's a thing called orthostatic. When that cremasteric reflex happens, sometimes it causes the blood pressure to drop, and it's called orthostatic hypotension. You sit up and you faint. You sit up and you faint. For three days, I'd sit up and faint. That's what I did. And I, Casey brought me a fruit jar, and I'd lay on the bed and pee in the fruit jar, because when I got up, I, I, I'd pass out, so I'd just pee on the bed. So I'd pee in the fruit jar. So after three days, I called my sponsor, because now the blood pressure is back to normal. And I said, Jim, you'll be proud of me. He said, why is that? And I said, uh, I had a vasectomy under local, had orthostatic hypertension, couldn't sit up for three days, but I didn't take any medicine. He said, you're an idiot. <laughs> now, the message for this part of my message is we take what we need, but we have to do it with an umbrella under us at all times. I had Charlie Frankie in there, and let me tell you what happened. For eight days, they gave me IV Ativan. I'm 17 years sober, one of the top addiction specialists in this country, working a good, solid program of AA. They gave Casey the medication to taper me. One of the ways we do this is you take so many the first day, so many the second day, so many to go 888 It's called the taper detox. Eight days. Gave Casey this. After four days, they cathed me, wrote a rooter out in my artery, did a bunch of neat stuff, and, and my heart's okay. And so I went home, she gave me the medicine. On the third day, and she and I differ in what we, and I'm sure what she saw is the truth, because what I was in was a partial blackout. But what I knew was, what I remember is that she was sitting there, and I walked over and picked up her purse, took out all the pills, there were about 20 of them, and took them. Now what she says is that I went over there with her not in the room, she was in her closet and took them out and took them. But the fact is, I walked over and took them out of her purse and took them all. And I remember her saying something to me, and, and what she subsequently told me was, she said, what the hell are you doing? And what I said to her, and I didn't know what I said, was this stuff's screwing me up, and when I get it all taken, I won't have to take anymore. 
Now, what I did remember was walking over almost right after that and sitting on the foot of the bed looking at her and saying, I'm going to have to write a prescription and get some more of this in the morning. And she started crying and I started crying. She says, it's got you. And I said, it's got me. And they took me to the mental hospital and I went through eight days of a bone-rattling benzodiazepine detox. I was dog meat with that medicine. So what Getlow was saying, and that was 12 years of amphetamine with no alcohol, eight years of alcohol, end up drinking a quart of whiskey night. I'm a true alcoholic. And eight days of Ativan with none of the others, and the medicine, boom. And there's a whole list of medicines that we can't take. And Getlow calls this sedativism, meaning the alcoholic will not be able to process mood-altering medicine like a normal person. Now, for the purpose of this presentation, the neuroanatomy and the neuropharmacology, I'm not going to go into to a total depth. But let me tell you, the neuroanatomy and the neuropharmacology, the brain chemistry and the brain anatomy, in its final common pathway is identical for all drugs. Doesn't mean the clinical presentation is the same. Because my 12 years of amphetamine was entirely different from my 8 years of alcohol. They were as different as daylight and dark in the way I presented the things I did, except for the complete loss of any sort of reasonable control or ability to take those medications. The presentation was entirely different. This is what Richard was talking about today. Is in Alcoholics Anonymous, we share a common experience. That's what brings us together, is that common experience. I can talk to a drug addict, and I can talk to an alcoholic, because I can talk my drug shit with a drug addict, and I can talk my alcoholic stuff with the alcoholic, but i got to tell you, they're different in their clinical presentation. And we attract in this program of attraction because of the similarity, not the differences. Now, we stay together, and if you read There Is a Solution, it's real clear. We stay together because we find a shared common solution. But we come together because we're attracted to each other. And I worked with hundreds of cocaine addicts. And I can get a little bit close to them with my amphetamine. But you put one cocaine addict working with another cocaine addict, you got to go. You got a deal. You put a pure alcoholic with a pure cocaine addict, and you got people talking apples and oranges. They don't even react the same in treatment programs, much less in a meeting. They don't even act the same in treatment programs. Now, I'm not here, to, at least not in this presentation, and tonight I may, all depends on where God takes me and how wound up I am. But I'll get to talking about a lot of other stuff. But right now, let me tell you, this is a clinical presentation. This is not an AA meeting. And I can say that without any reservation. Because I'm talking as a professional who has dealt with thousands of people with these clinical pictures. So it's clear that we do not process mood-altering medication like a normal person. This disease is chronic, progressive, fatal, and treatable. Chronic, no known cure. Real clear in the big book, 10th chapter, or the 10th step, 6th chapter, alcohol is subtle. We are not cured of our alcoholism. We have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body, but we are not cured of our alcoholism. Okay? And this is a real critical difference. If you want to start trying to get into those semantics to understand that we are not cured of our alcoholism, we have a chronic disease. Now, there are all kinds of magic bullets being perfected in research today. 
the current naltrexone craze and all the other stuff that's going on to treat alcoholics. There is no magic bullet because how are they ever going to be able to cure that hole in my heart? They may even take away the ability for me to have a compulsion to drink. But they're not going to cure the disease of alcoholism with a silver bullet. Because the book is real clear, fifth chapter, fourth step. We have a physical, mental, and spiritual disease. When we clean up spiritually, the others will almost invariably follow. Read it. That's about what it says, almost verbatim. Almost verbatim. So when people start talking about these magic bullets, all they're talking about is a pill that will take away the compulsion to drink. My compulsion to drink has been gone for 21 years. My disease is as alive and as well today as that SOB was 21 years ago or 62 years ago. And in Richard's talk today, he gave one of the most classic definitions and presentations of the difference between the disease of alcoholism and drinking. He drank to deal with his disease of alcoholism, and because of the physical allergy, he hooked into the booze. But he was drinking to deal with the disease of alcoholism, and we're going to look at that whole disease. The price of admission is to stop drinking. The treatment is how to deal with the disease. So it's a chronic disease, no known cure. Progressive, there are two forms of the progressive nature of alcoholism. One was defined by Dr. Jelnick in the late 50s and early 60s. He described a six and a half year, seven year mean average of drinking. A person hits a crisis shotgun in their mouth, whatever it may be, but this is the crisis. And then three and a half year mean average back to where we look and act normal in recovery. Many of us look and act normally, but I got to tell you, if you're an alcoholic of my type, you ain't even close to being in the real world. You ain't anywhere near normal on the number of people that are out there. We're a minority, the alcoholic, and we're not like those people, as I said earlier. I look like them, I can dress like them, and it's my job to learn to live in their world on their world's terms. Not their job to figure me out, but I ain't like a damn one of them. And when I get through, you're going to understand why I'm not like those people. If you're an alcoholic of my type, you're not either. This is what Jelnick described, and he was really describing what we know today as the adult form of alcoholism. But there's a juvenile form of alcoholism, which is an entire different ballgame. The other forms of progressive nature of alcoholism is if I start drinking today, and we've seen this historically, if I start drinking today, it's almost like a Steven Spielberg movie. First we'll go judgment. Then we'll go rational behavior. Then the whole thing kicks back in as far as the addiction to and the inappropriate compulsive and obsessive drinking. And the longer a person's been sober, the more, the more rapid it hits and the more severe you can see it because it's stark. And this will occur within a matter of a few weeks to a few months or even sooner. A person who relapses early in the first five years, they're not as stark because, hell, they're still about half crazy anyway. And you watch them bobbing around, and you don't know they got crazier when they start drinking again. They're nuts anyhow. But you take some, I mean, and if you've got less than five years sobriety, if you take that personally, just listen to me. Because for the first five years, I was just lucky to get in the right restroom, you know. And everybody thought I was a pervert. Hell, I couldn't figure out what the skirt was and what wasn't the skirt. I didn't know what that little tent was, you know. And it's almost that bad, losing my car and when I sober when I, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and we'll get into the post-acute recovery syndrome, which is that, that's a part of it. 
but you, it really stark. I've made 12-step calls on one man with more than 40 years of sobriety. Made I don't know how many on people with more than 30 years of sobriety. And it's really stark. And interestingly enough, the guy with 40 years of sobriety died sober. I, the number of people I've made 12-step calls on with more than 30 years of sobriety, none of them died sober. They all died drunk. Uh, it's really difficult, and it's really traumatic. But that's part of the, what is going on we don't know. Some research gives us some insight into it with what we call the aldehyde condensation products or the old THIQ, which many of you have heard about, which is still not anywhere near the, uh, the Bible that it used to be, and I'll, I'll address that. But it's probably the window. The National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Addiction has just allotted $50 million to study six major components in six major sites on alcoholism. And the aldehyde condensation products are THIQs 1. There's female alcoholism that's being studied in depth. And the genetics of alcoholism, those are the ones that interest me. There are three others, and they don't interest me that much. They're more academic. They don't have as much to do with clinical stuff, and that's where I really live and breathe and work is in the clinical environment. Fatalist disease is 100% fatal. Cirrhosis pancreatitis, GI tract cancers, I can go all down through the physical stuff. Homicides, suicides. 95% of the, of the beds in the trauma unit at the University of Louisville Medical School, which is a major trauma center, 95% of those beds are occupied as a direct result of alcoholism. 95%. So this is a, disease is 100% fatal, 100% fatal. And the, and the seminal issue for every alcoholic, and I will talk about that in my story tonight, is when we decide and make the commitment, do you want to live or do you want to die? And when you read, when you read the chapter to the agnostic, it says to die an alcoholic death or to live a spiritual life is sometimes a tough call. <laughs> you know, you, and you think, huh? Yeah. Do you want to live or do you want to die? And every one of you, if you got to the point I did, dying seemed the most obvious, logical, and acceptable. And that's why the instance of suicide in the alcoholic population is 17% greater than the normal population. We get to the point of being hopeless. That's the bad news. The good news is we get to the point of being hopeless. And those people that it still works for who never got to that point, I take my hat off to them. Because some of them are still sober and working a good program. But I tell you what, I think they have to work harder than I do. Because i got nowhere else to go. And they may still have another drunk. I truly in my guts don't believe I've got another drink. I've heard people say I may have another drunk, but I don't have another recovery. I don't think i got another drink. That fear alone won't keep me from drinking. But it sure can keep your attention until you figure out how not to drink and sure as hell keep your attention. 100% fatal. Treatable. New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA both reported in the late 80s that if you treat physicians, and I do this for physicians, correctly. Now, the operative word is correctly. There's a 90% chance of recovery at the end of five years. You treat the normal population correctly, 70% chance. Now, the operative word is correctly, and I absolutely agree with Richard today. In fact, I agree with the about 99% of the talk he gave, and the 1% I disagree on is just a matter of degree, and I think I've just had a little more experience than he's had in one or two spots. But in principle, I'm 99% in total agreement with that talk he gave today. And I got it. So you may not want to come to tonight's talk. It may not be. If it pissed you off, you want to come. If it didn't piss you off, you probably can't wait to get there. Uh, 
but, but and, and and I really and I really mean that. I really do mean that. Uh, but the, and I do believe that the rate of recovery is somewhere between one and thirty-seven or, or five to ten percent. But the operative word is correctly. Now, in our impaired physician program, what we do is when we intervene on these docs, immediately when we go in, we intervene, we do our own evaluations, we do our own interventions, we do our own initial treatment. When they come back, they go into physician's recovery groups. They go to AA anywhere from six, or anywhere from five to six times a week. And so Big Book says you don't do that. I agree with that 100% for regular drunks. But I've come to know after 400 physicians and looking at 10,000 physicians around this country that are sober after five years, and of the 400 docs we treated, 10 walked in saying, help me. 390 walked in trying to save their ass. They weren't a bit interested in saving their soul. And yet we now have a recovery rate of 95% after five years, and we're following up five years later and other states who have been able to have comparable structured programs after another five years show they're still showing 95% of those people still going to AA. And about 15% of those people who quit going. Between 10 and 15% of those people who quit going. Now it takes about two to three years for those doctors to change to where they really begin to see this spiritual way of living is really worth it. Because when we had two-year programs... We had a relapse rate of 60%. We found that there's 30 to 35% that relapse between two years and five years. And so we become their benevolent dictators. I won't do this in AA, but I'll sure as hell do it in the physician's recovery program. And you better hope I do a damn good job if you ever come to Kentucky. Because if you walk in your doctor's office, you don't know whether that doctor's got a pill or an alcohol problem or not. But you better hope we do. And if you want to tell me that I should not intervene and control their lives, then ask your neurosurgeon if he's taken, if he's had a drink or not. You know, one of our good friends, one of my good friends, went in to have heart surgery one day, uh, and, he, and the doctor walked in. He said, "I've gone over all this week." He said, "I really appreciate your history of alcoholism. Do you have any questions of me?" And he said, "Yeah, have you had a drug screen today?" <laughs> I thought that's funny as hell. I love that. I just, I thought that was great. And and the doctor looked at me and he started laughing. He said, no, but I'll take one if you want me to. And he said, no, I just thought I'd be cute. I thought, maybe you picked the wrong time to be cute. Be cute after the surgery, right? <laughs> anyway, so this, there, this success rate is directly contingent on the commitment to the program. Uh, it's correctly contingent on the responsibility. Wilson said this program is spiritual. He didn't say it has a spiritual component. He says it's spiritual. Two components, humility and responsibility. Humility and responsibility. It's, it's very difficult to get goosed by the Holy Ghost if you don't get off your ass. Okay, it's really difficult. I won't say impossible, but I'll say virtually impossible. So spirituality requires a lot of work and a lot of commitment and showing up. It just doesn't happen out of the sky. This disease is a biopsychosocial disease. We're going to look at each of those components because to, to omit any, any of these components in a spiritual resolution, it's just, going to, it's just not going to work. Even if they don't drink, there's not going to be the quality of sobriety that we're going to see. Let's look at those in reverse order. Let's look at our society. We live in a society which not only condones drinking, it promotes it. Now, this talk is not against alcohol. The Jews call alcohol the gift of God that gladdens the hearts of men. And for 90% of the population, that's true. For 10% of the population, it's the kiss of death. 
Everybody knows that statistic. It still holds true. Still holds true. So we live in a society which not only condones drinking, it promotes it. Look at our advertising. Our advertising is not subliminal. Subliminal advertising says, first of all, subliminal advertising is illegal. Our current advertising says you're stupid because we're going to show you a commercial that's so damn dumb that it's going to force you to, or going to encourage you to drink beer. And you're thinking, I'm not buying that, and yet you're drinking beer. In Kentucky, when UK plays basketball, no TV in Kentucky comes on without a bottle of beer in one hand and a bag of popcorn in the other. The TV doesn't work. Must be the truth, because that's the way everybody sits and watches Kentucky play basketball in Kentucky. The redneck jokes fit for Kentucky. I know I am one. I'm a redneck. And my family tree only forks one time, you know. And that was somewhere in the 1700s. That's not really true. My eyes just got close because of my drinking. We live in a society of not condones drinking, it promotes it. And let's look at it. Here's our commercial. And these play a big part. If they didn't, if they weren't being successful, the whiskey industry right now is getting ready to put millions of dollars in to try to combat the beer industry, which is whipping their butt because of advertising. Commercial. Here's these three guys coming down this gangplank. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. The bottom of the, of the ramp is a John boat. Six-pack of beer in there. All their decoys, all their camo outfit. They're obviously going goose hunting. And back up here in this cabin are these three beautiful women. Totally chauvinistic commercial. 3 in the morning. They're all waving goodbye to their men, and they're too dumb to talk. They just stand there waiting. And the guys say, it don't get no better than this. You know, and all the guys go, yeah, 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 yeah. And my wife looked at that, and I'm a goose hunter. And she said, that's the dumbest commercial I've ever seen. And I said, yeah, when I drank, I didn't hunt. When I hunted, I didn't drink. She said, no, if you think I'm going to stand there at 3 in the morning, wait, goodbye to you, you lost your back. And here is this good-looking 25-year-old girl with her arm around this gorgeous 25-year-old uh, young man. It's a great commercial. They're moving away from the camera, and her hand is a cold black bottle of Cavassier. says, are they going to have fun tonight? Women. Gorgeous woman. Typical, typical 1990s type of woman. Six-foot tall, lean, cold black hair gown down to her ankles, just gorgeous city twinkles below her. She's in a 40-story penthouse apartment, and beside her is this long neck glass, and there's bubbles in the glass, says, for the woman who can have everything. The most seductive show these 30 and 40 good-looking 20 and 25-year-old young men and women going out to this seaplane. They take a burlap, or it's burlap, and they take the burlap off. It's a seaplane. They go up and they land in this azure lagoon in the Bahamas. They come out. The guys all have a case of beer on their shoulders. That night it shows this gorgeous girl behind this sheet screen with a fire behind her and her body is lithely dancing. Next day it shows her in the, in the surf with a beer bottle in her hand. The seaplane's behind her. Perfect setting. It says they don't ever have to go back. What's the message? Life is good, but what makes it better? Drinking. Between 1982 and 1987 in Jefferson County, a population of a million, I must have talked to 50,000 school children between the eighth, fifth and sixth grade in high school, sharing my experience, strength, and hope with them. With the impact of being a physician, recovering alcoholic, with some idea about your eyes are blue, you inherited that, your hair is gray, or your hair is brown, you inherited that, and you will inherit this inability to drink like a normal person, so if you've got alcoholism, and they, they really bought it. The fifth and sixth graders loved it. And I related to them more, and I was talking to Casey, she said, yeah, I think it's because of your arrested emotional development. <laughs> and, but the fact is, we do arrest emotionally. 
The minute we start drinking and drugging, that's when we quit growing. What is maturity? It's living through life's processes, adjusting to how to deal with them in a mature fashion. And if you're drinking and drugging every time you run into adversity, or even if you're having fun, as I did, you don't grow. I treated doctors who made it through medical school smoking dope from the time they were 14. And what they were were highly trained technicians who could operate on your heart but didn't have the emotional stability to act any greater than a 14-year-old. One young man in particular, chief resident in family medicine, picked him up. They called me down, he's smoking dope, making rounds. I got him out there. We sent him off to six months of treatment. Treating a a, a pothead is, is difficult. And this, this lecture is not against, uh, uh, isn't dealing specifically with marijuana, but I'll tell you, it's the worst drug we got on the streets today. It makes cocaine pale because of some of the impact of, of marijuana. And in another lecture, I don't know when the hell it'll be because it won't be back down here probably, but, in, but what we know about it today is incredible. We treated him, came back, got in, in, the, in the N.A., was doing fine. He's such a good doctor, we hired him. And when I quit practice, we had 17 docs and five offices. And I had him in one of those offices. He got married. Uh, his wife got pregnant. She called me one night. She said, I think Mark's using it. And I said, why? And she said, well, he's not coming home until 2 or 3 in the morning. So I called Mark and I said, why aren't you going home? All these drug screens ran out. I said, why aren't you going home? He said, oh, Burns, I've just been trying to get my records up. I said, get your ass home. Be with your wife. She's pregnant. It's kind of like Richard said, you know, I ain't here to deal with you about trying to figure this out. Get your ass home and be with your wife because she's pregnant. She has the baby. She calls me back and she said, I'm sure Mark's using. I said, uh, why? And she said, he's not coming home at all. Baby's about three weeks old. So he comes home, eats breakfast, changes his clothes, goes to work. So I go down there that night, park that. Sure enough, I pull up in the, in the driveway at 3 o'clock in the morning. His car is there. Lights are all on. I go in. I can hear him back in the office. I'm expecting to see him with a needle or with a bottle or with a joint. And I walk in and you know what he's doing? He's sitting there playing computer games. What do 14-year-olds do when they've got a new baby and new responsibilities and they never grew up? They do what 14-year-olds do. They play computer games. And this whole process of recovery and spirituality is maturity. It's growing up. About three years ago, I grew up. Honest to God, I'm sitting there and I think, I'm a grown-up. It was a wonderful feeling. It was a wonderful feeling. And, and, And people say, you know, take somebody like Richard or somebody like me, or I can go around the room, and, and, and if you're over 40 years old and you get up to the podium, you say, I can't wait to be what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm going to say, give me a, oh, give me a break. Jesus Christ, give me a break. Don't sit there and think that's cute. It's not cute. That means you're not even trying to work a program. This maturity comes as a result of working this program. When I start getting cute about it, like, I can't wait to be what I'm going to be when I grow up. You make me want to puke, you know. Work your program and grow up. Instead of wandering around thinking it's neat to be arrested emotional development. But anyway, I related to these fifth and six-year-old kids. They called me down to see this little gal who was in the fifth grade. I walked in, and they trusted me, and I really trusted them. And I walked in, and everybody else, she looked at me and said, Dr. Brady, I'm glad you're here. Everybody else asked her where she got it. I said, why don't you do it? And she said, because Sarah Jane, one of the other little girls in school, brought it to her and said, if you don't do this, you'll be all these four-letter words we've all heard. Don't say if we're in good recovery and sure don't want to be called. And she said, I don't want to be that. Don't ever underestimate the power of peer pressure. 
We use it very constructively in meetings. We use it very constructively in sponsor pigeon relationships. Let me tell you, I did what my sponsor told me to do for the first 10 years of recovery because I wanted his approval. Then I finally grew up to know that I had to live on my own approval. But while he taught me how to grow up and shared with me many things, I did it for his approval. Don't ever minimize the power of peer pressure for those using and for those in recovery. It's absolutely, absolutely one of the most important things. What do we say when people get sober? Run with the winners. Don't go in slippery places. Change playmates, playpens, and playthings. These are the societal components of drinking. When I get finished, you'll even have some idea how the brain chemistry changes when we go back in the bad environments. So society and the societal component of this, critical. If you want to be a winner, run with winners. If you don't want to slip, don't go in slippery places. The neat things that we say, and they really hold, change playmates, playpens, and playthings. It's not possible that the, what Sheila talked about last night, and, I, and Casey sponsored a young woman who came in much like you came in. And to see you today tells me you chose to run with change playmates, playpens, and playthings as dramatically as anybody as dramatically and I really take my hat off to you because I know that's not easy especially when you're as young as you are but it has to be done you can't have a foot in one side of the world and a foot in the other can't work can't work if you're an alcoholic of my type let's look at the psychological components alcoholic personality there is no such thing all the, all the reputable data tell us that when you say he has an alcoholic personality, I don't know what that means. There is no such thing. If you run MMPIs, which are tests for emotional stability, on us, you'll never find our emotional profile. You'll never find a normal one, but you won't find a consistent one. So there is no such thing as an alcoholic personality. Still used in a lot of the medical profession, doesn't hold water. Mental illness? There's no more mental illness in the alcoholic population than there is in the normal population. Mental illness being bipolar disease, schizophrenia. Some of the literature talks about an increased incidence of bipolar disease. That's hogwash. It is not true. There's no more mental illness in the alcoholic population than there is in the normal population. Three to eight percent. Bipolar disease, schizophrenia, and major psychotic depression. Now here's the hooker. And stay with me because this is where we really get... This is where I got into some of the damnedest fights with the professionals you've ever seen. And I don't expect to get into any with y'all, except from those people who aren't listening with an open mind. The hooker in this is that 90% of alcoholics have significant affective disorders as a part of their disease of alcoholism. It's not alcoholism and affective. Now, let me tell you what the affective disorders are. They're anxiety and depression. Simply stated, anxiety and depression. And it's not alcoholism with a secondary or axis two diagnosis of depression, or axis one even. Alcoholism or alcohol abuse or alcohol use disorder or alcohol dependency and major depression. No, the depression is a part of the disease of alcoholism. Bill Wilson. Spend the time to study this incredible man. God, if you don't believe God picks the most wounded soldiers to serve, then you need to study Bill Wilson's life and need to be grateful that he picked you. 
when he wanted a job done, and if you haven't read the Bible closely in years, read it. He always picked the wounded soldiers. But Bill Wilson was racked with this, the affective disorders. Ninety percent of us have significant affective disorders, anxiety and depression as a part of our primary illness of alcoholism. In most instances, it will be significant and precede the drinking. And therefore, when we drink and stop drinking, we've still got it. Now, the deal here is how are we going to treat it? And this is where you get into the dual diagnosis stuff that floats all around. And the fact is, if you don't treat their depression, they can't get sober. Or if you don't treat their anxiety, they'll drink again. Well, there are some people who do need treatment for their anxiety and depression. The critical call is who and how many and when. Who, how many, and when. And I will tell you that the two studies, the two major studies done, were done by Mark Shuckett at Scripps Institute, who has been one of the leading educators in the disease, especially in genetics, and met by Mark Gold at the Brain Institute in Miami. Both these are psychiatrists. Neither of them are alcoholic. Both of them have been devoted to us for as long as I can remember and doing real solid research. And they have stated separate studies that 100% of alcoholics coming into treatment or coming into recovery are depressed. 60% will clear within four weeks just getting off of the drug or the, the drug being alcohol. 60%. And another 32% will clear within one year learning a new way to live. That means you've got 92% clearing of their major depression and anxiety to the point that it's disabling by learning a new way to live and staying off the drug. That leaves 8% who are going to need medicine. As opposed to the 50 to 75% today who are on medication. Now, the critical deal is who's, who decides who, who needs it and who doesn't. People like me, not just doctors, addiction specialists who have recovery and no recovery process. That's why it's best, not essential, but it's best to see a physician who is in recovery. I'm talking about an addiction specialist in recovery working a 12-step program because all the studies are real clear. The number one treatment for alcoholism is AA. Multiple studies, the number one treatment, the number one mechanism of recovery is AA. And anything, in anything that's done in addition, that needs to be done by people who know exactly what they're doing. The last five years of my practice, I guess I saw every alcoholic in Jefferson County, million population, who wanted to stay sober because they knew I wouldn't give them the wrong medication. But they knew I'd get the right thing for them. And when these people would come in to me, and I'm just sharing it with Lynn, when these people come in and would sit down with me, and if they were in that first two years, that gets real spooky. So you just had to figure out if they were able to pee in the right commode and zip their fly up and if they were able to get to the right room and if they, were, if they literally were able, and that, that's kind of cutesy. But what I did want to know is, were they sleeping halfway decently and could they get to work and could they show up where they were supposed to show up on time and were they going to their meetings and did they have a sponsor? Now that's what I needed to know. Because if they were doing those things, then I, I would continue to see them usually at two-week, three-week, or four-week intervals so I could see if they were going to slip into their vegetative state. And if they were, then they got put on medicine.
because they start getting vegetative. They deserve treatment because they're getting into some real tough stuff. And these people literally can stop eating, can stop sleeping, and can get in real trouble even trying to go to AA. Not many happen, but they can that first two years. After that, when the person would come in and sit down and eat, I'd say, are you, uh, what are you doing with your recovery? Oh, I'm working my program. Tell me about your program. How many meetings are you going to? Well, I'm going to three. How many were you going to a year ago? Six. You got a sponsor? Yeah. How often do you talk to a sponsor? Well, about once every month. How often were you seeing your sponsor talking to him a year ago? Oh, I've seen him at meetings every night or seen him at meetings three or four times a week and talking to him, you know, frequently during the week. And if I'd go down, I would see they had moved away from what got them there. And I would, the first thing I would do with these people is I'd say, you get a hold of your sponsor and you have your sponsor in to see me in a week. You come in with your sponsor. So, number one, I wanted to find out if they had a sponsor. Number two, I wanted to find out if they had a sponsor that knew enough to piss in the tub. Because today in this population, what we've got are a whole bunch of people sponsoring people out of the sheer volume of numbers. And Wilson, Richard was right on. Wilson, in his last major address, talked about two things. One was that anonymity was ever more essential to recovery, and the other was AA must and will change. And Richard's also right is I don't think Wilson had a clue just exactly the dramatic impact that would have, but he knew that it would change. And he didn't say that was necessarily a bad thing. And when I first read that, I called uh, a woman who'd been sober about, she died with 55 years of sobriety. She had about 50 years of sobriety at that time. And uh, Geraldine D., actually she's dead, so her name was Geraldine Delaney up in New Jersey. And I called Geraldine and I said, has AA changed since you came in? She said, yes. I said, how's it changed? She said, when I came in, there were five old-timers for every newcomer. She said, today, there are about 15 or 20 newcomers for every old-timer. So we got people with one, two, and three years of sobriety sponsoring people. And i got to tell you, that's scary. That is really scary. So I would have them bring their sponsor in. We would talk. I'd give them a, a set of Joe and Charlie's tapes, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and say, you listen to every one of these tapes before you see me in a week. And they would come back in, and it worked out exactly right. About 92% of them just weren't working the program. And when they worked it, they did fine. When they applied it on a daily basis, the 12 steps, the whole deal. And while I agree with Richard that the whole program is the 12 steps, there are components to that. And he didn't, he didn't say that it, that it didn't. But I have this logarithm about the principles of recovery. When you're talking about spirituality, it's a triangle sitting on its point. The base is up here, and the point's right here sitting on a base. And if you want to know if your life's in balance or why you may feel like shit, go to logarithm. On this corner, this upper left-hand corner is sponsor. This upper right-hand corner is meetings. This point that it's balanced on is the big book, which are the 12 steps. And it's sitting on a base of honesty and one day at a time. And if you want to know, and in essence... When you go to bed at night, if you do the 11-step prayer the way it's written, that's exactly what it's telling. Is there somebody I haven't talked to today? Who's that about? Who's, who's, who is, could that be a sponsor? God knows it might be. Is there somebody I haven't made my amends to today? Have I been kind and loving toward all? Have I been self-centered, dishonest, resentful, or fearful? This is 12-step work. And you do that, and I'll guarantee you, every night when you go to bed, if you draw that and you look at it, and you're feeling like crap, even if you're not feeling like crap, ask yourself. And 92% did fine. 8%, 8% would end up needing medicine. If they walked in and told me they were doing that whole drill, 
they got sent to a psychiatrist that afternoon because these people needed medicine. And anybody in AA, unless you've got a medical degree who wants to practice medicine, then you need to do your own inventory. I've sponsored at least two schizophrenics and I had to sponsor them because they kept being told to get off their medicine by people in AA. Now, I also understand that a lot of people in AA have a real strong aversion to physicians because there's a lot of ignorance out there. And part of the job of, that people like me have taken on is educating doctors. And we're doing it. Not as rapidly as I'd like, but nothing happens as rapidly as I'd like. But we're doing it. But part of my message is quit practicing medicine. Share your experience, strength, and hope, and get people, if you've got a, spot, a pigeon that you think needs medical help, get them to somebody like me and let them make that decision, and you share your experience, strength, and hope. Affective disorders. Affective disorders are divided into their anxiety and depression. The anxiety is divided into obsessive-compulsive disorders, agoraphobic disorders, panic disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorders. We have found that in our homeless shelter where we have this running rampant, we don't have to deal with the affective disorders with one exception. The, anxi the, anxi the panic stuff, the agoraphobic stuff, the OCD stuff, in almost no instance do we have to deal with that in the first two years. The one we do have to deal with is post-traumatic stress disorder associated with child abuse in women. I've done at least 200 fist steps in that men's homeless shelter set with some of those guys that are big enough to eat that wall in my lap, stroking the back of their hair while they talked about being abused as a child. Most men will not relapse over being abused, sexually abused as a child. They get aggressive and they want to fight everything. Anger is incredible. The women invariably relapse. Unless there is some parallel track to teaching them their recovery process and letting them look at that in the 12-step modality. You put most people into any sort of deal like that too early, they'll, they'll relapse over the pain. But the women have to look at it. And our experience now is close, with the men, we've had close to experience with 10,000 men. With the women, we're, we started the program later and our experience is running closer to about 1,000 to 1,500. But I'm telling you, it's consistent across the board. Other consistency. 85% of the women's drug of choice was cocaine. 85% of the men's drug of choice was alcohol. These are street women and street men. Now remember, if you think about that, that's not hard to understand. These women are being controlled by their pimps and johns with cocaine. And a woman can be homeless living in a house. So we, and we thought, we'll, we'll change the program. <laughs> it didn't work. The men, the men with their alcohol problem, they didn't make any sense for about six months, but we could get them in there and, and, and just rote teach them. Because all they do for, for, for six months is read the big book all day and study it just like a textbook, go to meetings at night. That's what they do. And the women could get it quicker with cocaine as their drug of choice. They just didn't remember it any better. So we went back to our six-months format for both the women and the men. For both the women and the men. But we didn't have to deal with any of those affective disorders except post-traumatic stress disorder in the women. Uh, depression, primary... Basically what you see in there is... Uh, we're not talking about bipolar stuff. That's a whole different animal. I would say at least 75% of those men were diagnosed as bipolar. My job is to review what their diagnosis was when they came in and the medicine they're on. They're not bipolar. They're just very typical drunks who act like bipolars. 
and you get them off their medicine, they're not bipolar. They are not bipolar. Um, but leaving out bipolar illness, endogenous and exogenous depression, if there's a strong family history of depression, strong family history of depression, in all probability you are dealing with an endogenous depression. I don't know if it'll need medication. That's not my point. My point is that you'll have to recognize that and the spiritual program will work. But in all probability, you'll need to be in touch with a physician who understands that or a sponsor who's sensitive to it. Camille's very sensitive to this. Very sensitive to this. And I mean, she, I remember Camille 10 years ago when she was a rock-carrying atheist about anything like this, and today she's not at all because she sees the difference. And this is somebody that is my wife's sponsor and somebody Sheila knows very well who's got about 26 years of sobriety. And uh, she was a black belt uh, uh, AA member who... Uh, had more aggression than she had sense for a long time, but now she's got both because she's got some information and she's really doing a hell of a job. Other thing that needs to be looked at, ADD, that's attention deficit disorder. 90% of male alcoholics will have hyperactivity or attention deficit disorder. 90%. The original history on hyperactive children was it, was, it came on at birth, burned out at the end of teenage years, and was over and was related to a dopamine deficiency, which is a neurotransmitter. Okay? That's why we gave Ritalin, because Ritalin works to increase dopamine in the brain. We found that it goes on into adulthood in 90% of males, alcoholics, and it's called ADHD or ADD residual type. My home group's a men's meeting, and I love to sit in this men's meeting because I love men. I love men. I'm, I'm female-dominated, but I'm male-oriented. And that's exactly the way I've always been. 